Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly note that this episode contains some adult themes. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Katie Brand and in this special episode, I'll be hand-picking some more standout moments from previous Penguin Podcasts. At the heart of the podcast are objects that our guests have selected and brought in, items that have helped to unlock or harness their creativity. And so we'll be hearing how Salman Rushdie created a character from a deck of cards, Michael Palin fell in love with a wooden stool, and why Ruby Wax will only wear red knickers. Not only that, but we'll see our brilliant guests reveal their influences, things that have made them who they are and become part of their work. But first, what if your fictional characters become intrinsically linked to your daily life? Here's Arundhati Roy, best-selling author of The God of Small Things, at a special Penguin Live event with Kirsty Lang. I'm someone who, who uh, waits for, for things to come to me. I don't pursue them as a career. So the characters just pop into your head when you're writing they, fiction? They sort of uh, don't pop in, they kind of pass by and you exchange glances and then they come back and then they visit and then they stay longer and then they move in. (laughs) And when I spoke to the Regeneration Trilogy author Pat Barker, she described the point when characters speak to you, whether you like it or not. I felt it particularly with this book. Briseis's voice came very early, very powerfully. And unusually, if I had to go off and do something else and drop the book for a few days or even a few weeks, I went back. She was still talking. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I could slot back into her very quickly and easily. It's almost like she's calling to you through the centuries, telling you what she wanted to say, or, or was it based... It, it can pe- feel like taking dictation at yeah. times, you know. As a writer, especially if you write a lot of dialogue, you have voices in your head, and if you're wise, you don't mention this to your GP, because <laughs> you know what the next step is going to be. Yes. You, you shut up about it. I was speaking to Pat Barker there, who was telling me how it feels when characters you've created start talking back to you. Ian Rankin found that his personal life directly influenced what his famous Rebus detective did on the page. In this clip, he's showing a photograph of his son to David Baddiel. Jack is the older one and Kit is the younger one. Mm. And lovely boys. Kit is, I don't know if you can tell from that photograph or not, he's got special needs. He's, uh, I can't he's, particularly he's, tell from he's that. Quite, he's quite severely disabled. He can't walk, he can't talk, he can't feed himself, he can't dress himself. Okay. And part of the reason why the Rebus books got quite dark and mm. quite potent for a while as well, because I was channeling a lot of the stuff I was feeling and going through and giving it to my character as a way right. of earthing it as a kind of catharsis. Mm. Talk a little bit more about that frustration. Do you think, did it help? Did it get you through it? Are you less frustrated and angry about that situation now? In some ways, I mean, I was quite horrible to Rebus. Around about Black and Blue and The Hanging Garden, those were the two books I was writing at a time when Kit was being diagnosed. And in Black and Blue, I think I pretty much take him down to his lowest point where he's having a, a needless fist fight with his best friend and they collapse on the ground. And then the very next book, the first thing I do is put his daughter in a wheelchair. She's hit by a hit-and-run driver, and that's because we'd learned that Kit might never walk. And so I just thought, right, you're going to have to go through what I've gone through. And to another famous Scottish writer, here's William Boyd telling Nihal Athanayaka how he felt when ending the life of the main character from his much-loved novel, Any Human Heart. 
have you ever had an emotional reaction yourself to killing off a character where you yourself have perhaps gone to your wife and gone, right, I've got... And Sebastian Falk said that he went to his wife and said, he's gone. Yes, I had the same effect, particularly with Any Human Heart and the character of Logan Mount Stewart. It was a very long novel and you follow his life from being a schoolboy to being a, a man in his 80s. And of course I knew Logan was going to die and I knew exactly how he was going to die. And I remember coming down the stairs and saying to my wife, Susan, Logan has gone. And I had a sort of slight moment of not emotion so much as a kind of sense of an, an ending, as if I was relaying the death of a relative or a close friend because I had been living with him for three years and I had I had engineered his departure from from this world and it was just a an odd moment which I recognised and then went back and corrected the lines and got on with the the novel but I did register that sense of a fictitious life coming to an end but having a kind of strange moment of sadness. William Boyd there, who was in to talk about his novel, Love is Blind, focused on the world of a piano tuner at the turn of the century. And music is time and again a source of inspiration for writers. Owen Colfer, author of the Artemis Fowl series, used music to inspire him whilst writing the sequel to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, commissioned by the Douglas Adams estate. Here he's talking to Paul Smith. You've chosen two cassette tips. We've got a Bowie tip and a Kate Bush tip. Why did you choose these? Well, when I was writing the book, I decided that what I would try and do is go back to, in some way, regress to how I was in 1979. That was the music I was listening to. I suppose specifically in Bowie, it would have been maybe Changes 1 Bowie, that album. And it would have been obviously either on uh, record or cassette when I started to write the book in 2008, I went out to my office. I had a little office out in the garden. Uh, and I, of course, like everybody else, I kept all my cassettes. Now, a lot of them were uh, pretty, didn't work anymore. Or the tape recorder would eat them. But some of them uh, did work. So, And I found that I'd made a lot of compilation cassettes. So I would listen to these while I was writing uh, the book. And that helped me to get back into that joyous stage of being 17 and, you know, reading Hitchhiker's Guide and listening to Kate Bush and David Bowie and Led Zeppelin and uh, Pink Floyd. Owen Colfer there, whose book Artemis Fowl is in film production with Kenneth Branagh at the helm. Presenter and author Reggie Yates told David Baddiel how he uses portable DJ decks as a diversion from his writing. But for me, more than anything, it's actually quite therapeutic to play music, but even more therapeutic to mix music. Right. There is something about, like, you know, you know what flow is, right? You know, the idea I've of... heard of it. Okay. I don't I'll... know if I've ever flowed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but as a writer, you a million percent oh, have. yeah. So flow is that thing where and you are... And as a performer. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure when you're on stage, you sort of riff, and then sometimes yeah. you'll realise 30 minutes have gone by because you're sure. just in flow. Yeah. So flow is this idea of being fo- so focused on one thing you're just acting and reacting so naturally that time sort of goes away and you lose hours. You lose a huge chunk of time and you end up achieving something that you haven't planned. In the zone you're is in the moment. people talk about. Right. Don't know, I do feel that sometimes as a performer, right. but I've never DJed. So, well, it's but, the same thing. Right. Like When you're mixing records, you forget everything. And the reason that that's the first thing on my list is because 
you know, when you're writing, sometimes you get to a point where you need to think about something else because it can be all that's on your mind. It can stop you from sleeping. It can get in the way of your relationship. Mm. So sometimes it's nice to do something that completely blocks you thinking about the thing that you've been thinking about for months. Sure. And mixing records is that because you have to concentrate. Yeah. And oh, there's right. so much enjoyment that comes from it. Yeah. Like you're taking two things and making something completely new. Yeah. It's just amazing and you just lose yourself in it. I took my DJX RX in my suitcase because it mm. fits with me to Los Angeles because I was there for some work stuff and I was writing and I had it as a little escape and it was just the best thing in the world. Reggie Yates there on music as meditation. Here's Ian Rankin again talking to David on why Silver Machine by Hawkwind was one of his chosen objects and how, given the choice, he'd rather have been a musician than a writer. There I'm sitting in my bedroom in this mining village, Bohill, and I've got my comics and I've got a few books from the library and I've got the radio with Radio 1 and I've got a dance record player, which is actually my big sister's record player yeah. that my parents got with cigarette coupons. Mm. So I started buying singles. I would save up for singles. And one of the first ones I bought was Silver Machine. And it sounded like the sound of the future. Yeah. The synthesizers on it. All that stuff. I thought, whoa, this is another world. It's a science fiction fantasy world. And it was creating images in my head. You know, it was it was painting pictures in my head of a world that could be. So it would take me out of this little box-sized bedroom yeah. to explore new worlds. Music is a big deal. You're in the 30th year of Rebus. It's won numerous awards have been translated into 36 languages. And yet, I believe you say uh, that you'd rather have been a musician than a writer. Most writers would. Yeah, I'd rather have been a footballer, I think. Well, there you go. Yeah. And you'll meet footballers who say they would rather be painters, and you'll meet painters who say <laughs> yeah. they want to be actors and actors who want to be poets. Yeah. Nobody's totally happy doing what they're no, doing, man. Of this course is the story. That was Ian Rankin, who is also in a band called Best Picture, so he does get the best of both worlds. Now, the multi-talented Stephen Fry lets us in on one of his own passions. He discovered when he was about 10 that he loved Greek mythology. Here he is explaining to David that his study of the classics became a huge part of who he is. And then, you know, when you have a sort of, you know, for some people it may be, you know, German aircraft of the Second World mm. War, but when you have a pet subject yes. and then you watch something like University Challenge or, yeah. or, or Mastermind and a question comes up in Greek mythology, my ears would prick up and it yeah. was as if it's like when someone you love has crossed the street in front of you. You know, your heart leaps up. It's a very, you belong to that yes. subject and it belongs to you and yes. you, it's, it's personal. Yes, and well, the identity of uh, when you're young, you're all about creating precisely. your identity. And so your identity at that point was a fanboy of Zeus That's and Greek exactly mythology how in general. Now, precisely. Right. I see. So you didn't find it difficult at all because obviously one imagines you were a clever 10-year-old. Well, but at I the same mean, time, it is quite a, uh, it's a lot of information. It is. And in that sense, I suppose, for some people who are very interested in fantasy, the legendarium, as I believe it's called, of Tolkien mm. is full of names that I don't really know because yeah. it's not something that's ever particularly spoken to me. But, you know, they'll know all the details and Games of Thrones fans know all the, what the Seven Kingdoms or Five Kingdoms, however many kingdoms there are in Games of Thrones, they'll probably know them. And it's part of the pleasure in the same way at that age, you collect information about football teams and, mm. and Messerschmitt 109Es or whatever it is. So that was part of the pleasure. Stephen Fry there, who's written two books based on Greek mythology to date, Mythos and Heroes. Another guest who talked about discovering her own identity is journalist and author Viv Groskop. Thinking that her surname was Russian, she took several degrees in the subject and lived there. 
Here she's telling me what she finally discovered about her heritage with rather unexpected consequences. And then it just took on a life of its own because I went to go and study Russian at university. Then I went to go and live in Russia on and off in the in the 90s. And then when I was back home, people would say to me, oh, you must be Russian because your name sounds Russian and you speak Russian. And you spent lots of time in Russia. And it became a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it wasn't as if I went around introducing myself to people and saying, oh, hello, I am Russian, actually. It was more that in my head I was thinking... I'm just discovering my roots in a way that my family never wanted to. And then, of course, with the invention of the internet, it all came crashing down. A cousin contacted us who we didn't know at all in Canada, Bob Groskop. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're not Russian at all. We're Polish and we're Jewish. And our name means fathead. <laughs> so this, for me, that was a devastating moment. And I just have come to believe that it's the most brilliant example of normative determinism of I have done the most fathead thing you could ever do and choose the wrong country, (laughs) the wrong language, the wrong literature. Viv Groskop there telling me how you can expect one thing but find something else. You're listening to a special edition of the Penguin Podcast. If you've missed any editions so far, you can download them for free on iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast and a whole world of podcatchers, players or apps online or on your smartphone. Now, Zadie Smith, when speaking to David Baddiel about her novel Swing Time, realised that her family had had a huge influence on her writing. I'm interested, having met your mum, how you felt about writing th- this character with right. your... Because your, I've just done a show about my parents, yeah. and one of the things I was able to do was be very free. I mean, I'm, my show is completely true, 100%, right. but, but very free because my mother is dead. Right. And I wonder, because your mum is a very powerful woman, yeah. what she would have thought about this book. I think there is a kind of late art that comes out of dead parents, right? Yeah. Like, uh, there's some really interesting examples. Saul Bellow is a good example. Roth is a good example. Nobody thinks of it consciously that way, but it's certainly the case. When I was writing it, I mean, I gave it to my mother, and I wonder what she'd make of it, but she correctly saw, and it's true, that a large part of that mother is much more like me than her. Mm. I think when I'm writing, the subconscious part is an element of, casting forward you know so like when I first got married I ended up writing a book about being married for 30 years and when I had my children I wrote this book which is really a projection slightly of when your mother is turned to another thing as I am turned to writing what does a child make of such a thing you know but my my mother enjoyed it I think she liked the book maybe even more than my others and I think she's also very used to all these kind of literary avatars which she knows mm. are multiple versions of things I've imagined or dreaded or and also whatever the book demands right there becomes a logic of the narrative which kind of quickly spins away from fact or reality. Zadie Smith there who has family in mind whilst writing and here's Anthony Horowitz author of the Alex Ryder series talking to Connie Huck about how he escaped into his imagination whilst on day trips out with his parents which led to a love of secret passages. You know, the Tintin books have influenced me in other ways too. They're full of secret passages. Nobody created a secret passage better than Hergé. I mean, in Cigars of Pharaoh, there's a a tree trunk that opens with a secret door and inside the tree is a spiral staircase going down into the ground. And that's how I've always seen the world. When I was a small boy, again, being dragged around really boring museums or stately homes by my parents, (laughs) I was always tapping the wood panels, waiting to find which one would open and would take me into the secret passage. Funny sort of way that my story are just that but a lot of what I write are sort of 
secret ways of escaping from reality. I actually now have a sort of secret door in my house. It was absolutely vital to me that I should reach my office every day through a secret door. Because you mention in your book, because you have been working on the uh, Tintin film adaptation, and that was a Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson project. And you mention, and I was just very interested, that Peter Jackson has a secret Peter, case. Peter Jackson has the most amazing house. secret passage I've ever seen. When I was with him in New Zealand, he took me along a corridor, a long corridor in his film studio, and halfway down is a stationery cupboard. And it's just a straightforward, ordinary stationery cupboard full of envelopes and what you'd expect to find. But you press the button... And the back swings open on hydraulics and it takes you into the most awesome office, which is where he works. I loved working with Peter. I found him the most impressive man and the most genial, incidentally, for somebody who is, you know, so successful and so powerful in the world of film. Utterly genial, delightful. But anybody who has an office behind a secret (laughs) passage couldn't be anything but. Now, as you may or may not know about this podcast, our guests choose a handful of objects that have inspired them in their life and work. When Salman Rushdie came in, he explained to David Olashoga why he chose the Joker from a pack of cards to create a character based on a modern American president. And that leads us on to your next object, which is a photograph of the Joker from Batman. Can you tell us about that? Well, one of the things I've felt for a long time, really, is that while here we are as ordinary human beings with our ordinary lives and problems and issues, when you rise to the level of power, there's a kind of grotesquerie about it. And that um, the person who eventually became the 45th president was a kind of embodiment of that. I mean, one of the things I've always felt about Trump is that I see him as an effect, not as a cause, out of which these bizarre phenomena like Trump can emerge. And then I just thought, in a deck of playing cards, the only two cards that don't behave properly are the Joker and the Trump. And I thought, well, I don't want the word Trump in this book, and so I'll have the Joker instead. And it starts out in the novel as a political campaign that Rene and his girlfriend were making sort of political commercials, you know, to run during the election campaign, used the character of the Joker and indeed Batwoman fictional Batwoman, in campaign ads. So it has that point of origin as as something in the story. And then it sort of spirals out of that into becoming a kind of riff about America, this place where a kind of craziness took hold and then succeeded. That was Salman Rushdie, who lives in New York and based most of his novel The Golden House there, in an exploration of contemporary politics and culture. In terms of influences, apart from hip-hop, nothing has shaped Ramesh Ranganathan more than comedy. And so one of his objects was a mic and its stand. He explains why he chose this to Nihal Arthanayaka. I love stand-up more than anything else. Like, you know, obviously I do other stuff in my job, but stand-up is the thing that I enjoy more than anything else I do. And also I am better at every aspect of my job when I'm continuing to do stand-up. It's like... If I'm doing any type of show, if I I have to go and try and find somewhere to gig, otherwise I start to become worse, I feel, at the other jobs that I'm doing. That's your gym routine. Basically, yeah. So the reason I've got a mic stand in my garage is sometimes when I've written a bit, I'll stand by the mic stand in my garage and just try and sort of get myself into the headspace of like what it's going to be like to deliver that. On your own? On my own in the garage. In your garage? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's you're weird, isn't there it? with a microphone looking at an imaginary audience. Have, yeah. you, have you painted them onto the inside of the garage no, door or do you have it. mannequins in various states of well, I, discontorted... Listen, my marriage is on a knife edge as it is. If my wife walked into the garage and saw me talking to some people that I'd painted onto the wall, that would be it. Ramesh Ranganathan there. And Ruby Wax's special object, a pair of red knickers that she brought into the studio, are important as a result of her stand-up shows. Now she cannot be parted from them, and she tells David Baddiel why. But I have a, a little bit of an OCD thing. I have to wear red underpants. Oh, really? Always? Always. Why? Because I think something bad will happen if I don't. So oh, these really? are some pants. Is that a Jewish thing? No, did, I wonder if it might be because... Did uh, Jews wear red underpants? No. Let's not, ask our readers. It's not the underpants, it's the thinking something bad will happen <laughs> part of it. So a- anything you might do, like I have on now... Yeah, uh, a, really, a rubber band. No, no, it's a thing I got in the Himalayas. I, yeah. I went to some Hindu temple and, yeah. and on top of a mountain and they gave me what is now a very ragged piece of string. Oh, and wait till it really falls off. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and I am He's a, laughing. I'm a fundamentalist atheist yeah. um, and I therefore should not have any truck with the idea that this protects me in any I've, way. I wouldn't let it go either. Yeah, no, I can't. I find it difficult to let it go. You get, I, it's juju, isn't it? it? Well, that's what this is. Yeah. <laughs> that's two of us. So, <laughs> but I think uh, that there might be something there. But why, with all the work you've done on yourself, do you feel like if I don't wear red underpants, something bad will happen? Maybe because when I did really good things, maybe on stage, I was wearing red underpants. Right. And then I just do it for the shows. And now I think, well, you know, so now they're all red underpants. Michael Palin has a favourite stool that he brought to the Penguin Live show. Here he explains to David why it means so much to him. Let's look at your next item, which I think is an African stool I have written Ah, yes. (laughs) Sounds rather disgusting. It does sound bad. It is an African stool. Oh, thank God, it's that kind of African stool. Look at that. This is very beautiful. Where's that from? The Karamajong tribe in north-eastern Uganda. Okay, and that's handmade, presumably? It's handmade, and it's carved from one piece of wood. And it's got a little bit of decoration, you know, it's a bit of a sort of chamfering there. The guys just carry it around with them, and um, and they just sort of uh, held it uh, as they wandered around so unselfconsciously. These very tall men, and... It's very short. It is very short, but then doesn't take up much space, and they were just... Put it under there, and they'd sit on it, and it's actually incredibly difficult to yes. sit on. Uh, I'm, as I'm, I'm getting, but I've managed. Uh, brilliant. But later, I... uh, thank you. <laughs> I cannot tell you just how perfect form and function it is. You know, these guys walked along; they were talking. That's why I'm doing this slightly strange yeah. walk because yeah. they're talking away. You know. And then whenever they needed a meeting, they just sat down. So you had your chair with you all the time. Where, where do you think it comes from? This desire to explore very different cultures, cultures where men carry around tiny stools with just, them. I'm just curious. I just always have been curious about, you know, what's around the next corner, over the next hill. It just started very, very early on. I was fascinated by the, the world, and, and particularly the unattainable world, that a schoolboy living in Sheffield would never, ever dream of, yeah. you know, going to the North Pole or the South Pole or the Gobi Desert or whatever. Michael Palin there, talking about his love of travel alongside his book Erebus, about the Victorian ship and crew that pioneered explorations of both the North and South Poles. 
Often objects are chosen because they represent a real-life event which has made its way into books. The children's author Jeff, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Kinney, voted one of Time magazine's 100 most influential people, actually brought a sick bag into the Penguin studio. He explains why to Connie Huck. So let's move on to your next object, which is an airplane sickness bag, I believe. That's right. Have I, you ever? Have you ever thrown up on a plane? <laughs> I have indeed. It was it was kind of a, a very strange situation. I got onto a plane, and I wasn't feeling that good to begin with. And mm. this is in my adult life. And for some reason, I got it in my head that I hope nobody orders tomato juice. Right? <laughs> I just I just thought that that would put me over the edge. And I was <laughs> tipping so, point. Right? So I actually uh, put my head down you know, on the seat in front of me. And then the person to my right ordered like three cups of uh, of tomato oh, juice no. and they passed right under my nose. And then my memory is that then there was a whole cart of, of tomato juices com- coming down the aisle, <laughs> like, like, a bad like, like levels and rows and <laughs> columns of tomato juices. And, and that was that was it for me. I ran oh. to the back of the plane, found a sickness bag and and that was that. Was it a long haul or a short haul? <laughs> it wasn't that long of a flight. I'm sure Phew. people were wishing I, I wasn't on their flight. Jeff Kinney there. And yes, the sickness incident made its way into Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Great Escape. Of the many objects journalist and author Catlin Moran brought into the studio was a Wolverhampton Library reservation card. Let's hear her tell David Baddiel why. So it's in three parts and you would write on it either the author or the composer of the book or the album that you wanted, the title, and then you would you would hand it over to the librarian and they would get any album or any book that you wanted for free. I remember that happening myself in libraries. I know it seems amazing now when all that stuff is free. Yes. You know, people think like, yeah, obviously music's free and more or less books are free because you can probably find some but PDF the, of them online but somewhere. This but this was a better system. There's so many reasons why the library system works better than any other. First of all, you've got a building that you can escape to. Mm. Like kind of like you need a third place. Like yeah. you can't if you need money to go to a shopping mall, your home might not be safe or pleasant. Mm. To have a third place that you can go to in a rainy country where you need to be indoors, where you're safe that's full of books and with the random element of being able to walk around and something catch your eye. You know, you're never going to have that random element when you're Googling because algorithms mm. are just throwing up the most popular things. Yeah. They're not going to find the random weird things that might just change your life. So yeah. you're, you're in a, a palace of random happiness and events. The other great thing about the library system <laughs> is that the library service would pay for these books and these records. Right, of course. So that supported the music do. industry and the authors. Yeah, but you can't, the, the system is much smaller now. You yeah, don't do yeah. it. And also because people can get stuff online for free, they don't yeah, need to. Yeah. But this system worked. If you look at the music industry now, I get increasingly, I'm 43, I'm starting to go, the era that I lived through was a great era. There's no money in music anymore. So like kind of when, when we start looking around at the moment and going, you know, there are no sort of like, there are no anthemic songs anymore. There are no spokesmen. There are no people dressed up in ridiculous clothes kind of like making you feel happy. There's nothing to bring us together as a culture. Everything is very fractured And the now. library is a way of bringing us together as a culture. Libraries it, it bring was. Catelyn Moran on the importance of libraries. And finally, when I spoke to the wonderful Michael Morpurgo, author of War Horse, among many other classic children's books, we touched on the subject of libraries, and he too became very passionate. Here are some of his moving words. We accept in this country that it is the right of all of us to go to a doctor free, to go to a hospital free, and we expect that health service to be good. What we don't seem to understand is the same thing should apply to intellectual and emotional 
growing up. And books teach you you're not alone. They teach you to empathize with other people. So when you're young, you're reading a book about old people. If you're Muslim, you can read about a Christian. If you're Christian, you can read a, a Muslim. It brings people together. That happens in books. And the more they get to understand the nuances of language and what that can bring to them, both intellectually and emotionally, I think it creates more balanced, more contented people who are better prepared to deal with the complexities of this world. And this is a really complex world. And everyone has to have an education that can help them cope with it. And books seem to me to be key to turning this around. The great thing about a book is that it, it engages with a child, a reader, deeply because the child has to make the effort to understand these words and imagine it for themselves. And when you do that, then you can begin to comprehend yourself, your position in the world, who other people are, and, yes, give you hope and encouragement, a sense of reality, connection to the world about you, to society about you, all these things. Yeah. We should get there. We should get there. Really rousing and important words from Michael Morpurgo there. And so that brings me to the end of this special edition. If you've missed any of the episodes featured, they are all waiting to be downloaded and you can do so on Acast, iTunes, SoundCloud and a whole host of brilliant podcast player and catchers. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books. You can subscribe to ensure you receive all the latest episodes and feel free to leave a rating or review. We're always keen to hear what you think. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. B and Dan, recently married, rent out their tiny flat to escape London for a few precious months. Driving through France, they visit B's dropout brother Alex at the hotel he runs in Burgundy. Disturbingly, they find him all alone and the ramshackle hotel deserted, apart from the nest of snakes in the attic. They hurried after him along the corridor. There are loads of snakes, he said, but mostly they're just grass snakes. They're sort of company. Company, said B. They've got nice round eyes. It's the vipers I don't like. Asp vipers. Vipera aspis. They're in the roof and it pisses me off. I think we heard them above our bed last night, said B. Little fuckers keep me up nights, said Alex, snacking on mice. I want them out. Fuck's sake, said Dan quietly, running out of patience. A short ladder was nailed to the wall by the corner from the older part of the hotel to the extension. From there on, the corridor was undecorated. Bare bulbs hung from the ceiling, and through an open door they saw the leavings of a previous occupant, beer cans, a sleeping bag. Don't look in there, he said, shutting it. Did someone sleep in there? asked B. Me, when I first moved in. I need to finish those rooms, but I'm getting on with the main hotel first. Up we go. Come on, Dan, you know you want to smash snakes' heads in. Give in to the urge. You do know snakes are protected, said B. Nobody's smashing anything. Yes, I know that, B. Chill. He started up the ladder. Encumbered by the boxes and sticks, his hand swiped at the trap door to the ceiling and his body swung wide like he was on a rope ladder. Why don't we do this tomorrow, said B. Writing himself, he ignored her. OK, it's not nice up there. Hold your nose. 
When tragedy strikes suddenly, brutally, Bee's family is stripped back to its rotten core. The Snakes is the new menacing, magnificent novel from Sadie Jones. The audiobook is available to download now.